Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Now, Jim and Troy, was that? I mean, you guys knew what they didn't know, that the sermon title for today is uh, Messy Church Equals Real Church. Yes. Did you? So that was planned. Yes, that was totally, totally planned. Totally planned. Okay, good. There we go. Yes. Yes, <laughs> thank you, thank you. All right, well, good morning, Hope. And again, if you're watching online, we're really glad you're with us. We know a lot of folks check us out online before they show up in the room. We think it's better in the room if you're comfortable being here. It's a little different than a single camera, and we're grateful for the camera, but uh, we hope that you come and uh, join up with us sometime soon. Uh, well, we're in a series of messages that we are calling Following Jesus Together, and today I want to focus in on that last word of the uh, series title, Together. I want to look at how it is that we follow Jesus together by looking at the idea of, of church and of the church, um, because together is a big part of why we actually gather like this, and, and we'll call it do church. Um, now, how many of you know that the church is not a building? The church is not a building. See, we've talked about this here and there. We, we remind ourselves of this. But in the New Testament, um, the word church is ecclesia, and that word ecclesia does not mean a building. Church means the people of God gathered together. So um, the church actually doesn't happen until the people of God gather together. This building is not technically the church until you guys, you, come and gather. So you are the church, and when we, the people of God, gather, then we are the church, which is a big part of why remembering that church is a together thing. But just even on the face of that, and in, in light of the message uh, title, Messy Church Equals Real Church, um, we have to admit that when it comes to the church, lots of people are disillusioned with church in our day. And for good reason. We see scandals, we see greed, we see political posturing and maneuvering, we see power grabs, we see a twisting of scriptures that try to make other folks look inferior. Um, if you've been around any kind of church for any period of time, you know that sometimes Christians can often be arrogant. Just look at Facebook, maybe, right? Christians can be arrogant, mean-spirited, unkind, and make statements and treat other people in ways that are actually the opposite of what Jesus taught us to do. Um, researchers, researchers that study these kinds of trends uh, say that it's a safe bet that, that for one of the reasons for the decline of faith in the Western world, so um, in the U.S. and Europe, um, one of the reasons for the decline of Christian faith is because of the disappointments with the church. So that's a true thing. Yet at the same time, we know that it's crucial that we follow Jesus together. And so lots of folks that have given up on the church, they start to feel lost in what it means to actually follow Jesus when they're trying to do it by themselves, which in time will take a toll. And I want to start this morning with a confession. I have a strained relationship with the church for the reasons that I named above, things that probably bother you as well, scandals and greed and political posturing and power grabs, twisting scripture to make other people look inferior, um, the fact that Christians, especially on social media, can be very 
mean-spirited and unkind and look nothing like what Jesus calls us to. And by the way, me included, (laughs) I am guilty of that from time to time as well. So I do. I have a strained relationship with church for those reasons. Um, And then also working uh, in church ministry as a a pastor also has kind of led to some of that as well. Um, One example is that a couple weeks ago, I let you guys know that Heidi and I had spent uh, five days in Florida on a small retreat for folks that were mostly former pastors. Um, In fact, we were the only people still working in a church. And hearing their stories, um, almost all of them had bad experiences in the church. Many of them are disconnected from church right now. And and it breaks my heart, um, partially because their story has been my story in the past. I've been there. So, like, I get it. I struggle with church sometimes. And I think that's part of why um, God keeps bringing people for us to walk with and help walk through that Uh, Because we've been there and we still love the church. We still love what God is up to and his intention for the people of God. But I do. I struggle oftentimes with church. But at the same time, I know this as well. Um, Gathering together the church as the people of God, it's one of the crucial practices of a healthy, growing follower of Jesus. Like, it's important to make a practice of this, not just out of ritual or showing up, but because it gives space in our week for God to speak to us together as a community and then call us to our world together as well. So what do we do? We've got these two sides of this, right? On the one hand, we know the church is a mess, yet we know the church is important, and giving up on the church rarely works out well. So what do we do with our disappointments or our frustrations around the church? So this morning, I want to talk about what the early church was like, specifically in the book of Acts, and see if that can help us maybe get a better perspective on church today. And I want to credit a pastor who spoke at our uh, denomination's national conference a few years back, the Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, The pastor's name is Tony Suarez, and he really inspired and gave me helpful perspective that stuck with me, uh, even though this has been years ago. And it's a perspective that I think can be helpful for us as a church. And one of the things that he reminded me and us, it was a room full of pastors, right? Um, He reminded me um, of times in my own life where, where lots of times there's Christian circles or people in ministry or they've been in church for a while. And sometimes we start talking about frustrations with church, whether it's our own church or it's church at large in the US or, or maybe even beyond that. And at some point, this question gets asked, hey, what if we could get back to being a New Testament church? Wouldn't that be amazing? Right? Like when I got into church ministry, all of us young bucks, we're really passionate. We're trying to make today's church become more like the early church in Acts, right? We would often say we hoped that the church we were uh, working at and serving at could become a New Testament church. And specifically, we would read these verses that are going to be on the screen in a sec here from Acts chapter 2. In fact, I'll read these aloud. These were very inspiring to us. They are still very inspiring. Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves, and this is the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's what the first church was like. Doesn't it sound exciting? I mean, inspiring even, devoted to fellowship and eating together and seeing miracles and having everything in common, selling their stuff to take care of the poor and people getting saved every day. Wow. Wow. So yes, that does. That sounds like real church, right? It sounds inspiring. And oftentimes we read those passages and I think, you know, why can't the church be more like that today? Uh, what, what follower of Jesus wouldn't want to be a part of something like that? But check this out. That was seven verses of, you know, amazing utopia. There are 7,957 verses in the New Testament. And out of that, there are seven verses, these ones here, where things were like a church utopia. That works out to be 0.0879-ish percent. <laughs> That's how often it was utopia, right? Uh, I remember Pastor Paul Thompson, who um, was here and brought me on. Uh, there's this whole story behind that that many of you know. Um, but he had also heard, and he and I talked about this, this message that Pastor Tony spoke. And, and, and it reminded Paul that when he was in seminary, the students around him were asking the same questions that the students that, that I was going to school with asked. You know, And they'd ask the question, how can we get back to being a New Testament church? And Paul had a professor that said something brilliant. Um, Paul quoted him saying, the professor would say, before you guys ask that, have you read the book of Acts? <laughs> before you ask that question, reread the book of Acts. So what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is to look at the book of Acts. And what we're going to do actually is just touch on the first 10 chapters. That's all we have time to really kind of just scan through. And what we're looking at is what did the early church, what did this New Testament you know, ideal, supposedly utopian community of Jesus' followers actually look like. So here we go, chapter one. Chapter one of the book of Acts, Jesus gives his disciples some final instructions. They're supposed to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus is taken back into heaven. So the disciples go back to Jerusalem, and they go, wow, okay, so well, Judas betrayed Jesus, and now he's dead, and so I guess we better replace him and there had been 12 disciples in this inner circle of Jesus. Uh, now there's only 11, and they figured they needed 12. So best estimates are there are about 120 followers of Jesus in the room. And can you imagine how they decided they were going to, you know, these really godly men and women, how they were going to pick another leader, right? They're looking at each other going, hey, hey, how do we pick a new leader? Well, I don't know. I don't know how to pick a leader. Do you know how to pick a leader? I don't know, right? Does anybody know how to pick a leader? I mean, Jesus... Right? Jesus was the one that always picked. So I just kind of picture basically one of them shrugging and saying, well, I don't know, here's an idea. Why don't we just draw, draw straws, right? <laughs> like, hang on, does that sound like a good idea, a good way to you, like to pick a leader? I mean, we could try that at our next elder selection here at Hope, just kind of draw straws, see what happens. Yep. <laughs> so what they do is they nominate Two guys, Justice and Matthias, and they cast lots, which essentially is, you know, drawing straws. And does anybody know which one was chosen? 
Matthias was chosen. And have you ever noticed that we never hear from him again? Right? That's it. That's all. And is, is that even a surprise, really? So here we are. Chapter 1, book of Acts, and already the church has leadership issues, right? We haven't even gotten to chapter 2. Already we have problems. It's not quite so perfect. All right, chapter 2. Promise of the Holy Spirit arrived. Great, mighty wind and fire. People are speaking in tongues and prophesying, and all kinds of healings are happening. And the people around them in Jerusalem see this amazing thing happen. But do they look at this and go, wow, this is great news. No, not at first, at least. And in fact, as soon as people see this thing happening to the Christians as the Holy Spirit's poured out, they're like, dude, these people are weird, right? The Christians actually get mocked. So the power of the Holy Spirit is poured out. And instead of the world around them going, wow, and being amazed, they actually mock them. They think that the Christians are drunk. So two chapters into the story of the early church, we got... Leadership issues, and now the church is being mocked for being weird. Now, chapter 2 ends with what we read about all the utopian parts of the early church, people selling their possessions, giving to the poor, and we're on to chapter 3. Chapter 3 of Acts begins with Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, um, apostles. They're on their way to the temple to worship God, and they come across a crippled beggar. This guy's crying out for help and for money. Verse 4 of chapter 3 says, Peter says, said to him, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk, right? Stand up. Now, okay, you and I know that the dude gets healed, which is cool. It's good. But, but think about this. A beggar asks for money, and Peter and John look at him and say, sorry, buddy, we're broke too, right? We don't have any money. We don't have any gold or silver. So here we are, chapter 3. The church is already broke. <laughs> already broke. This poor guy needs money. Peter and John can't help him because they don't have any money. In fact, they tell him, get up and walk on his own, which, think about this. If he hadn't gotten healed and somebody overheard them saying to the crippled guy, hey, just get up and walk on your own, it would totally look like they have a lack of compassion, right? Can you imagine if Twitter had been invented and somebody saw this go down and right, sent this everywhere? Lack of compassion. So, by Acts chapter 3, the church has financial problems and perhaps could be viewed by some with a lack of compassion. And lucky for them, the guy gets healed and he does walk. Next chapter, Acts 4. All this great stuff is happening in Jerusalem. It's amazing. People are getting healed and saved and set free. The gospel is being preached. People are finding out about God's love And how do the apostles get thanked by the religious system and leaders in Jerusalem? They get thrown in jail. That's how. (laughs) We're going to throw you in jail. You're welcome, right? I mean, holy cow. So, so far in Acts, our utopian early New Testament church, we have leadership problems. We have mockery. We have financial problems. We have a lack of compassion. And now we have persecution. Yikes, right? These guys are being called criminals, the Christians. But in spite of all this dysfunction, I love this. In Acts 4, verse 32, it says, 
All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions as their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Wow. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. I mean, come on. That's amazing, right? It's amazing. It's incredible. But... Flip the page, we get to chapter 5. And I know we would never have this problem in our church or any churches around us today. But, but Ananias and Sapphira show up at church, right? And Ananias and Sapphira, if you know the story, they have a problem with telling the truth. <laughs> so now we have deceit in the body of Christ. Um, this is one of the weird stories that I wish we'd just like stop and do a whole message on because it's very confusing and very interesting. But the text says what they do is they lie to the Holy Spirit and they drop dead. Catch that? They lie to the Holy Spirit and they drop dead. Are you sure we still want a New Testament, you know, <laughs> book of Acts? I'm, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. All right, chapter 6. Um, by the way, at the end of chapter 5, there's more persecution. Christians are being beaten by the officials in their city. Because of their faith. Yet, chapter 6 of Acts, it says, in spite of all that, the number of disciples, followers of Jesus, was multiplying. They weren't just adding to their number now. It was multiplication. It's like, it's like church growth on steroids. And you would think that everybody that was in the middle of that would be really excited. It's great news, and they're really happy. But, <laughs> but, chapter 6, verse 1 says... But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. Let's pause for a second. See, the, the church had finally gotten the money thing worked out. But now people start complaining about who's getting served first. They're passing out free food to widows and orphans. But now people are complaining. Go back to the text. It says the, the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so the church is growing, multiplying, and now people start complaining. And, you know, those folks back then, they had become suddenly consumers. They had become consumers, which is the exact opposite of being disciples. I mean, aren't you glad that doesn't happen in churches today, right? Isn't that wonderful, right? I mean, there's not people in our day in the U.S. that complain at church like, like, who would leave a healthy church because, you know, the music was too loud or there weren't enough hymns or sermon was too long or too short or they don't like the way it was done. Why can't you do it like that other place does it right there, right? I'm glad you chuckled a little bit. Let's see if you chuckle on this one. Um, I'm going to walk on some ice here. Here we go, thin ice. Um, or who in our day would leave because leadership had difficult decisions to make about divisive issues like I don't know, COVID or masks or no masks or how to address issues like racism or injustice or because the pastors and leaders aren't tiptoeing about around what scripture says about how we're supposed to treat each other. You can laugh at that, right? Nobody, right? It's nobody. Uncomfortable. Thank you, Dalton. Thank you. We'll have you stick around for a second service and be the, the lone. 
And, and again, I'm really proud of how the Hope family has handled that. I mean, we, I, I hear horror stories from other pastors and churches, and I'm so grateful for your hearts on this stuff. Um, but sadly, broadly anyway, uh, these studies um, show that the church in the West, in the church in the Western world, Western global world, consumerism seems to have taken, overtaken discipleship. Consumerism seems to have overtaken discipleship. So unlike God's intention for the church, and this falls on the pastors and leaders, too often we pastors and we church leaders fall into trying to attract, we spend all our energy trying to attract and keep people by putting on a, a good show or providing program after program after program, we do that um, instead of calling one another to the growth and commitment that discipleship, that following Jesus requires of us. Now listen, at, at Hope, we do want to have fun as a church family. We're going to have fun <laughs> a couple times in the next month here, especially today. Um, but we aren't putting all of our energy into, you know, a good Sunday morning show. Um, that's not where we put our energy. Um, see, there's a saying that, that um, when it comes to church, that what you win them with is what you win them to. What you win people with is what you win them to which affects why we do what we do here, because we are not trying to win consumers. We are trying to make disciples. We are trying to follow Jesus together. Okay, relax now. We'll go back to the book of Acts. We'll get off of uh... <clears throat> Acts chapter 6. <sighs> Sum it up. We're just six chapters into the story of the early church, and the opposite of discipleship, consumerism and complaining, has reared its head. Now, by the way, there are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, but like I said, we're only going to look at the first 10. And in fact, these chapters 7 through 10 here, I'm going to knock these out in three, about three minutes. So here we go. Here we go. Buckle up. Uh, Acts chapter 7. Um, one of the followers, one of the deacons in the church, one of the leaders named Stephen, preaches a sermon so powerfully that the religious leaders in the city become angry, and he is stoned to death by the religious establishment. So now we have more persecution, and this time what happens with this persecution is the church actually, this tight-knit community, scatters. They have to leave Jerusalem, and they scatter across the region, which becomes a good thing later, but it's very traumatic. Chapter 8 of Acts tells the story of a man named Simon the Sorcerer. I wonder if he changed his last name when he became a Christian. So, any guesses? I don't know. Simon the Sorcerer becomes a Christian, and then he watches um, Peter and, and John lay hands on people. And when Peter and John lay hands on people, they get filled with the Holy Spirit. He's so amazed by this power that Simon offers Peter and John money so he can do it too. He's like, hey, how much do I have to pay to get that power? So, Peter has to scold him to avoid allowing corruption to overtake the church. Now we've got corruption in the church. Um, Acts chapter 9, um, a great enemy of the church who had led this persecution, um, and he had led the imprisonment and the killing of Christians. His name is Saul of Tarsus. Saul has a miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus. He gives his life to Jesus Jesus changes his name from Saul to Paul. <laughs> kind of a big deal. But when the church hears about this conversion, they say, what? No way, it's a trick. It's a trick, not him. 
I mean, there's no way that the same blood of Jesus that forgave my sins can forgive his sins. No way. So here we are, Acts chapter 9, and we already have a legalistic, judgmental church that doesn't believe that the blood of Jesus is for everyone, no matter what they've done. And finally, we come to Acts 10, and the Holy Spirit tells Peter, who's a good Jew, uh, a very clean, devout Jewish man, even as a follower of Jesus, Holy Spirit tells Peter to go to preach to Cornelius, who is a Gentile, who is seen as unclean. And Peter says, whoa, 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 God, there is no way I'm going to go preach to those people. They are, they're dirty, they're unclean, they're, they're not like me. Now, he eventually obeys God and does it, but just this interaction exposes that only the 10th chapter, we already see segregation and racism inside the church of Jesus Christ. So here's our First 10 chapters, right? First 10 chapters of this utopian ideal uh, early church. And already the church has leadership issues. They're being mocked. They have financial problems. There's a lack of compassion. There's persecution. There's consumerism and complaining and grumbling. There's more persecution that results in the church being scattered. There's corruption, legalism, judgmentalism, segregation, and racism. Whew. And that's not mentioning later chapters of the book of Acts where there's bad theology that has to get corrected. There's sexual impropriety. There's division and conflict amongst the leaders. Oh my goodness. We see this. I think we today need to honestly wonder, wait a minute, this? <laughs> this is the New Testament church that we want our church to be like? Like why in the world would I pray for our church to be a New Testament church? Because you don't have to even get to the 10th chapter to realize that the church is messed up. And it's made up of messed up, imperfect people. Remember, it's the people of God gathered together. The church is the people of God. And the people of God, even though we have a new identity and God is shaping, healing, and transforming us, we can be messed up and imperfect. See, from the beginning of church, it's been made up of messed up, imperfect people. Um, and even though God sees more of us and calls us into our true identity, the truth is that the church has been a mess and it's had problems from the beginning. And if you fast forward to today, and maybe you are somebody that's maybe read an article here or there because it makes the mainstream uh, press now and then. Um, and you read about the state of the church in the Western global world, lots of folks believe that the church is dying, that the church has no future. I mean, we do. We live in a post-Christian culture here in the U.S., and, and sometimes our culture can be anti-church, and let's just admit that sometimes for good reason. Um, there's things like uh, happening very frequently, especially over the last couple of years, where many younger Christians are deconstructing their faith, and they don't have a safe place to be honest about their doubts or their questions, and so they walk away. They just leave church because they can't figure it out in a church. I mean, there always also seems to be some side of scandal or corruption in the church. Over and over and over, we hear heartbreaking stories of abuse. We, we see well-known pastors falling into sin or being exposed for major failings. Um, seems like it dies down and then another one hits. We see the political nonsense. We see... Racism running rampant in many quarters of the church. 
And there are recent studies out that show that conspiracy theories that are plaguing our country the last couple years, they are often spread by people who attend churches and call themselves Christians. So, the church is a mess, friends. But is it weird that I kind of have a little bit of comfort in knowing that the church has always been a mess? And why, why, why is the church a mess? Oh yeah, because the church is made up of people and people are a mess. (laughs) All of them, all of us. It was true in the book of Acts. It was true in the New Testament church. It was true in the early church and all through history in the church up until today, church is messy. But there is always more going on. I mean, even just looking at the book of Acts, there was always more happening than the scandal and the weird stuff. Even in the mess, every chapter of the book of Acts, God is still at work. Quick rundown. Chapter one of Acts, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will come upon them. Chapter two, the promise was fulfilled. The Holy Spirit's poured out and 3,000 people came to Christ that day. Chapter three, miracles become commonplace. Chapter four, there's mass evangelism. Chapter five, there are signs and wonders and miracles happening all over the place. Chapter six, the church is multiplying. Chapter seven, Jesus is glorified. Chapter eight, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Chapter nine, a notorious murderer comes to Christ. There are more miracles that are seen. Even a dead woman is resurrected. Chapter 10, the church becomes a global family for all people. That's some highlights of the good stuff, even in the middle of the messy stuff. I mean, you look at that and go, wait, how? In the middle of a messed up church full of imperfect people where there's chaos and grumbling and racism and judgmentalism and consumerism, at the same time there's signs and wonders and miracles, people getting forgiven and set free, becoming family, loving and serving others with no strings attached and the church is growing. How do you have both at the same time? See, before there was ever a church, there was a promise. And the promise was made by Jesus himself. I talked more at length about this passage a few weeks ago in Matthew 16, where Jesus said, Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, this is the church of Jesus Christ. Remember, he literally stood near a place that was called the Gates of Hades. It was a notorious area where this rocky landscape was used for idol worship and demon worship for generations. It was a place of brokenness and pain and bondage. But even Jesus was saying, even those people can have hope. They are not too far gone from the power of Jesus to save them. And Jesus, upon this rock, Jesus is the solid rock. He's the cornerstone on which he proclaimed that he would build his church. He is the rock. And notice in the verse there, um, it says, I will build my church. Hmm. Not our church, right? It's not our church. It's his. I have a friend who um, is an older mentor that likes to remind us when we get really, you know, confused or frustrated about stuff in our churches. Um, He goes, hey, hey, Doug, Jesus thinks that this is still his church, (laughs) right? It's true. It's his church. And Jesus proclaimed right here, it's his church, and all the powers of hell will not prevail against his church. You see that? Gates of hell will not prevail. It doesn't say the powers of hell might not prevail, or we're going to hope and pray that they don't prevail. 
No, it says, Jesus says here that the very gates of hell and all that hell throws at us and fights against us with will not prevail against his church. Will not prevail. And all through history, friends, all through history, the powers of hell have raised up its best weapons to come against the church and try to destroy the church, and yet the gates of hell still have not prevailed. Even when the church is its own worst enemy, which has happened many times if you read into history, and it's a danger right now, but even when the church is its own worst enemy, Jesus finds a way. Because he's building his church. He'll look for a new group of people. He might look for a new culture to keep advancing his kingdom. I mean, if you read history, anytime the church or a nation loses their way, Jesus just finds another place to go to work advancing his kingdom with a willing people. And I think about how the USA is no longer the, where the church is growing fastest. And many studies say it's staying stable. Others say it's starting to shrink and personally, like I said before, I think a large part of that is how we cater to consumers. And so we're making consumers, not making disciples. And consumers have a hard time caring about other people. And listen, I am confident that the tide will turn, and it will take time, and it's okay, the tide will turn, because the church in the global west, in the U.S., in Europe, and the places where it seems to be stalling or shrinking, the church in the west, how many of you know that the church here belongs to Jesus too? It belongs to Jesus, too. In fact, I don't think Jesus sees American church, Mexican church, German church, Nigerian church, Chinese church, because every church in every nation is Jesus' church. We all belong to him, all of us. Yeah. No matter what happens, you know, we get afraid sometimes. What's going to happen in our nation? But again, I like to look at history and see that we don't have to fear, not even if persecution comes. Think about communist governments. Like, they've tried to wipe out the church in China. And now, the church in China is one of the fastest growing churches in the world. Check out this quote from Bob Fu. The number of Chinese Christians has now reached 130 million. That's 10% of their population. Projections are by 2030... If the persecution intensifies, it will actually accelerate the growth. So by 2030, not that far away, the number will be at least 224 million. More Christians than we have here. <laughs> China is destined to become the largest Christianized nation in decades. And then I love he says this, only God can do that. Only God can do that. Because it's his church it's his church, and sometimes it's a mess, but even hell can't win because it's his church. I'm going to say something real quick, and then we're going to close. Um, I want to make sure that, that, as I say, hey, listen, church is a mess. It always has been. I want to make sure that you, you don't hear me saying that we don't take the crap that happens seriously, right? Abuse, all that stuff. That needs to be put into the light. It's Jesus' church. He wants a pure and spotless bride. He doesn't want us to try to navigate and, and maneuver and hide stuff, right? He wants us to let the light shine on it. Because when the church tries to hide mistakes or blemishes or, or, or failures, we cease looking like the church. Um, see, healing and freedom will come in churches when we trust Jesus enough to be honest about what's happening 
and then trust him to free us and heal us. Again, remember, the church belongs to Jesus. He is never afraid of the truth coming out. Right? He takes it seriously. Okay, so now let's move to the closing here. Um, I want to look back at Acts chapter 1. I want to read the, the last words of Jesus as he ascends to heaven. Acts chapter 1. Remember, the church is just getting started. Let's read this out loud together. It'll be on the screen. Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, Jesus is saying right here, he wants the whole world to know him and his disciples to be the ones to tell the world. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are his disciples. And this is good news because we get to be his witnesses, his witnesses in the world. See, I think Jesus is saying to them and to us, church, I want you to take my power, my love, my aliveness. I want you to take the message of my grace and forgiveness and the way of the cross into the whole world. I want you to take it the whole world and we're gonna change the world. When he says, I want you to be my witnesses, I, I think it's pretty safe to say you're to be a witness. You don't have to be Jesus' salesman, right? You don't have to put pressure on people. See, witnesses just tell what they've seen. And Jesus just wants us to tell people about him and what he has done in our lives. So be the church, be a blessing, and friends, we'll change the world. We'll change the world. See, I wonder if we as a church kept loving and serving and helping people around us, if we did that. I wonder if the people who are interested in Jesus but skeptical of the church because they see the mess, but if they see us loving and serving, I wonder if they would see us as a people who look like Jesus and maybe they'd get curious and start to ask, what's going on with these people, right? And so just think, when you and I begin to pray this dangerous prayer together, God, we want to be the church. Start with me. Use me. I'm available. Work through me. I think Jesus will honor that prayer, friends. I think he will. Well, friends, I know the heart of the people here at Hope. And um, I know that you are a folks who are willing to let the love of Jesus flow through you and to accept and love people exactly where they're at. You're a people, we are a people who are willing to allow Holy Spirit to guide us and show us what it looks like to share his love with others. I know that's in your heart, so I'm gonna pray. Um, I'm gonna ask you to join me, a simple prayer. Um, God, it's our prayer, we want to be the church. We want to be the church. And God, will you start with me? Will you use me? I'm available. God, will you work through me? Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me as I bless you on your way out? Again, come on back at noon for the cook-off, trunk or treat. There's going to be a crazy cover band. I really hope they're in costume, and you're going to want to take pictures with Troy and Jim if they are. <laughs> Let me bless you as, as we go. People of hope, you are the church. You are the people of God. 
And as you now go into your world, may you open your hearts to being a witness of what Jesus has done in your life. And in this world full of division, anger, and despair, may you find opportunities to bless those around you with the light, the love, the hope, and the grace of Jesus. May we be the church and be a light in this lost and broken world. I bless you as you go now in the name of the Father and the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.